Hello, and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications, and geographical research. Climate change has become a buzzword of the 21st century and is one of a handful of global threats to humanity. Today we speak to American novelist Nathaniel Rich, author of Losing Earth, The Decade We Could Have Stopped Climate Change, to discuss his book and the people who have brought this critical issue into focus. A review of this book is available on our website at www.rgs.org schools under Resources for Schools, titled The Literacy Lowdown. Firstly, could you tell us what your book, The Decade We Could Have Stopped Climate Change, Losing Earth, is about, Nathaniel? Yes, thanks for having me. It's, it's about the uh, decade from 1979 to 1989, and a small group of people, um, primarily in Washington, D.C., who were the first to really uh, reckon with the scope uh, and threat of climate change, uh, both to understand the science and, and to first to try to determine you know, what could be done to, to stop it. And it's the story of their efforts, uh, an escalating campaign uh, over the course of the decade to draw people's attention to this existential crisis and try to uh, change the politics. And it's a remarkable story of the success, really, that they had for that, that decade, moving the issue from uh, an obscure kind of scientific concern to the forefront of global uh, diplomatic policy. Uh, but of course, it's, it's also a tragedy because at the end, um, all of their progress uh, at the last moment fell apart. On page one, you tell the reader that the greenhouse effect has been known and understood since 1979. Today, Greta Thunberg has just said pretty much nothing has been done about climate change and has tweeted she will repeat the numbers over and over again until something is done. Do you despair? Uh, yeah, I don't think you can be a rational person and, and look at uh, where we've been and, and, and you know where we've, we've come to at this, this past and not despair. But frankly, I, you know, there, there has been this, this framework in, in speaking about climate and in, particularly in climate activism for, you know, at least certainly in the last decade, but I think it goes longer than that of, you know, should we despair or should we be hopeful? And I find the whole uh, framework a bit childish. I think, I think the, the question is, is not so much, you know, what, what should our uh, emotional response be um, as as much as you know what should our policy political response be and what should our moral response be you know what responsibilities must we take upon ourselves uh, and Greta Thunberg has done as much as anybody to advance uh, I think that more sophisticated understanding uh, of the problem but yeah I think despair and hope are are both part of the equation but ultimately in the final analysis not consequential uh, what's consequential is uh, what what we take it upon ourselves, both not only as in, you know, in individuals, but as democracies and nations to do. By the sound of it, you're advocating individualism as well as collectivism in this move towards a change in behavior and policy. Well, I, I think they're connected. I, I think it's misguided to think that if we all 
behave more virtuously and take the bus or the subway instead of driving the car or, or eat vegan or more conscientious about turning off the lights, that that will alone solve the problem. Uh, it won't. Uh, we're, too, we're much too far along. Um, certainly, however, I don't think that we will be able to affect the kind of transformational political change required to you know, avoid really the worst case scenarios if we don't develop an ethics around, around climate change, if we don't understand that we all have a part to play, that we all, you know, by, by failing to act politically and by failing to put pressure on the people we elect uh, to take dramatic action, that we are all complicit in this 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 horror, and I think it's important to recognize, you know, there are certainly real villainous um, forces out there, uh, very powerful forces um, that are, are are doing whatever they can um, to stop any kind of meaningful uh, climate policy. But I think the more that we understand the issue, and the more that we see all of its manifestations in our own lives. Uh, the better we'll be equipped to bring <clears throat> the necessary pressure to bear on on politicians to make the tough decisions that are now required. On page four, you talk through the likely climatic conditions for a two-degree rise, being a prescription for long-term disaster. Others predict three degrees of change, with forests sprouting in the Arctic, the abandonment of most coastal cities, and even mass starvation. You list the effects right up to five degrees of change. What do you predict will be the level of warming? Um, I'm I'm truly agnostic about it. I think we're, uh, you know, as the scientists say, we're on a pathway now to something like four degrees, which would be catastrophic. Um, two degrees will also be uh, catastrophic. But I think even simplifying uh, those, these prescriptions down to full degrees or half degrees is somewhat delusional. Um, you know, there's an enormous difference between two degrees and 2.1 degrees and between, you know, 2.9 degrees and three degrees and so on going up. Um, what's, what's important to recognize is that, you know, as bad as we've let this get, this problem, uh, we still have an enormous amount of control and leverage over where the future is headed. Uh, and so I think, you know, what does seem clear to me is that we have a responsibility uh, as human beings alive at this time in, in history to put maximum pressure on our you know, political bodies to do everything possible to avoid catastrophe. And I think that's all we can focus on. And, and I think we, we can do that knowing that even in the best case scenario, we will still, um, there will still be a considerate amount of, of suffering. But of course, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a vast difference between a, a two degree world, as you say, and a, and a five degree world or something um, as apocalyptic as that. There are many important characters in this story. Rafe Pomerantz, from his initial reading of the word greenhouse in the Cole Report of 1979, to Gordon MacDonald, a science advisor to the national intelligence community, are both examples of central figures. The Jasons are another influential group. Who are they all, and have they been successful in their message? Yeah, I wanted, I wanted, it was important to me to, to write, um, about this, this small group of people um, who were taking on this problem very early on uh, and, and write about them in an intimate manner, um, because I think it's important not only to understand the political story of what happened, you know, this effort to bring pressure on 
at first the Carter administration in the U.S. and then the Reagan administration and the George H.W. Bush administration um, and all of the processes that went into that um, and campaigns. But what was striking to me about these people's stories as I got to know them very well uh, during the reporting is that they were not only concerned about, you know, they're not only thinking about the politics of it, they're also thinking in very personal ways about what these changes would do to their own families, how they would affect their own lives. Mm. Uh, I think of I think of Rafe Pomerantz in 1979, discovering the problem for the first time, being you know, gobsmacked by it and terrified. And he he goes home to his wife, and they are uh, two months away from having uh, a son, and they start immediately to have. Uh, a conversation that I think now is is almost unavoidable when young people begin to think about having children, which is, you know, is it ethical to bring a child uh, into being in this in this world when we know that conditions are are deteriorating? And that, to me, is really the heart of the story. It was not just the the public crisis, but but the ways in which this public crisis touches uh, one's own private life. And and I think this is something that we all must confront in some way uh, in our own lives. I certainly have. And, you know, the question of, well, how does this great problem uh, change the way we think about our own futures, the way we think about, you know, not just having children, but the decisions we make uh, in our lives? You know, what is what does this anxiety do to us? What does it do to our faith in our governments, um, in our uh, ancestors for failing to, to deal with this problem. And, you know, how does it destabilize the way we see the world and the continuity of our of our civilization? I think these are some of the great difficult questions that haven't really been posed in the literature. And I, I felt by uh, writing in a, a narrative form about these people who first confronted these questions in their own lives that I would be able to um, pose some of those questions, if not you know, resolve all of them, because frankly, most of them are, are questions that must be resolved by each one of us for ourselves. It feels like the chapter Mirror World might answer some of these questions as a form of predictive modelling. Is that fair to say? Yeah, um, well, one of the, the other main figures is, is James Hansen, who by the end of the, the 80s became the public face of, of climate science. He was a, a NASA scientist who began by studying the you know, planets in the solar system and then moved on to Earth and Earth's atmosphere. Um, and he had a uh, computer model that he used. Um, was, he was one of the main computer model, uh, modelers who was able to essentially input a bunch of data about the world as we know it and, um, and, and wind it forward to see the effects of, of global warming, see what it would do. But it, it did seem to me, and I think this might be what you're getting at, as a kind of, of metaphor for not only the, the kind of mirror world of, of politics, where things never really play out as, as, as one thinks they, they should, but also in the, the ways in which we, we think about the future and the ways you know, we, we sort of animate the future with our greatest hopes and and, and fears, and yet ultimately have to recognize that we have, you know, that it has a way of, of surprising us, uh, often, often for worse. And, um, and yes, yeah, so th- those were, that, that was sort of one uh, concept in the science that, that I felt spoke to a larger uneasiness in, in the way that we try to imagine a future that is, is, is far more disruptive and, un, 
and un- inhospitable to humanity as the present. After the Charney report, Exxon seemed willing to engage and indeed invested heavily in research to try and solve the problem of carbon. It was led by laboratory manager Henry Shaw. Why did this goodwill fall apart? Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I, yeah, and I think that, you know the main turning point in the politics is uh, comes at the end of the decade when the oil and gas industry articulates and doubles down on on a policy of trying to thwart any kind of meaningful political progress on on um, climate. Uh, and also to to so so doubt, um, but of of course Exxon and and the rest of the major oil uh, and gas powers uh, were well aware of the science of of climate change going back um, to the mid 50s, um, even before Exxon was Exxon, and it was called Humble Oil. Uh, Humble Oil had done major studies on uh, carbon dioxide problem, as it was known then. But once actual policy started to uh, come come down the line once you had major bills introduced in, in the U.S. Congress uh, at the end of the decade, uh, and the industry realized that it might suffer financially from severe limitations on, on, on uh, you know, uh, carbon dioxide emissions, for instance. Uh, then their tune began to change, and it moved from the scientific side of the business to uh, the policy and the economic side of the business, and and the you know the financial leaders were not willing to give an inch uh, in order to to solve this problem if it if it meant um, hampering their their bottom line. The chapter Tiger on the Road was the most frustrating for me, due to the scientists debating the language of will occur, likely to occur, or highly likely to occur and discussions on using words like almost sure or almost surely. Is this mere nitpicking? Can you explain why the language of these first climate announcements was so important? Yeah, it was this incredible um, <laughs> discovery I made. And during the research, there was this, this basically the first effort to try to develop uh, laws to curb uh, carbon dioxide emissions to help solve this problem of global warming. Um, these early meetings were held in, in 1980, uh, these, these subcommittees that are um, called by Congress to develop some, some language for legislation. And what's striking about these, these meetings, and the, the transcripts um, exist, they were in the National Archives in, in D.C., and I, no one had ever written about them before, but I couldn't, you know, I, was, I think I had the same reaction that you had once I read the, the transcripts, that... Basically, you have 20 people in a room who fully understand the problem, are all concerned about it, uh, and they all take seriously the responsibility they've been given by Congress to develop language for, for laws that, that could do something about it. In other words, there's no real antagonistic force. There's no you know, lobbyist. There's no pressure from industry. And there's certainly no politicization of the problem where you have one party uh, trying to, to stop uh, progress. Everyone's basically on the same page, and yet they cannot, for the life of them, uh, develop even a single sentence uh, that expresses their shared understanding of the problem. And and I think that you know this is this is in some ways a microcosm of the whole what plays out over the, this whole decade is that you know even before we had these tremendous um, antagonistic forces, uh, you know particularly the oil and gas industry. Um, trying to stop progress, we still failed all by ourselves 
you know, we, we still were unable because of our own, you know, whether it was sort of biases, um, uh, anxiety about introducing, you know, major changes in laws or our economic system, uh, or a general over-reliance on, on sort of inertia or on the market to solve the problem or science or technology to solve the problem itself. Uh, you know, nobody would really take a stand and, um, and, and try to change the world, for lack of a, of a better phrase. Uh, and it, it drove people like Rafe Pomerantz and James Hansen, who are the, the heroes of, of the story, it drove them crazy because they, they had a very clear vision of what needed to be done and they couldn't um, get others to act on it. And so, so the conversations that were held in that, that room at, at this hotel in Florida where the meetings took place seemed to me to capture just this general unwillingness to change uh, the status quo. And, and that's what's so, so maddening about it. Um, certainly it was maddening at the time uh, for people like Rafe Pomerantz, but in retrospect, it's, it's, it's truly uh, tragic. I should add, I felt frustrated and equally sorry for the scientists, constrained by the specifics of scientific announcements and doctrine. Yes, and, and you see that over and over again, this, this, the constraints of, you're right, certainly the scientific doctrine you know there's a there's a deep reluctance by the scientists to speak too forcefully um, or without qualifications you know this is a uh, there's a way of talking that's um, the accepted matter of you know a manner of discourse uh, in the sciences that that is is frankly you know extraordinarily conservative and there are reasons for that you know in the history of science and the scientific method and the development of scientific um, you know truths and all the rest um, but it doesn't, when you try to transpose it into, into politics, it, it falls apart. And similarly, there are similar kinds of restraints um, endemic to uh, democracies and to the democratic process. Um, and so when you combine the two, uh, you get this, this almost, this maddening kind of pantomime where nothing ever seems to get done because no one is willing to make a bold statement and those who do make bold statements are seen as as too radical uh, to be trusted. Did the CFC crisis of 1985 and the ozone hole discovery by British scientists inject some momentum into environmental awareness? So yes, when the ozone hole entered the public consciousness uh, and, and, and the general public grew terrified of, of this idea, although not entirely justified by the science, but the idea that the sun um, would, without the protection of ozone, would start giving people skin cancer and, and make uh, everyone go blind and impair their immune systems and all the rest. This led to uh, the passage of, of what was the first uh, global environmental treaty of its kind, the, what would be called the Montreal Protocol, uh, an agreement by just about all of the, the countries in the world to curb their use of, of CFCs, uh, the chemicals, the man-made chemicals that, that caused the problem. Once that passed, it, it, it marked uh, a pathway for a similar global treaty on uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, and that's how you get to the formation of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and uh, the process that remains with us today of, of a global treaty 
on, on, uh, on climate change. The Montreal Protocol of 1998, calling for a reduction of 50% in the CFC emissions, paved the way for the Paris COP21 Environmental Agreement in 2015, where the world agreed to hold climate change to a 1.5 degree rise. What are we headed towards? Do we want legally binding legislation, or should we be pursuing a different end? Well, James Hansen, I know, thinks that the Paris Accord is, um, you know, not worth the, the paper it's written on, and he has uh, his own ten-year plan um, that, you know, keep, keeps keeps warming to under two degrees, saves the global economy. A tremendous amount of money and uh, hastens the transition away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. There are a lot of other people who have similar plans, and they tend to uh, they tend to all have most many of the same variables. Um, you know, major investment in renewable forms of energy and and, and research, um, a rapid um, drawing down of, of fossil fuels, um, you know, an outline of, of coal production and uh, improved agricultural practices, reforestation, some uh, major investment in uh, technology that c- could subtract carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, technology that at this point is largely speculative. The problem, I think, is not so much the you know, what to do. I think we understand very clearly uh, what to do. The problem is how do you motivate nations and, and ultimately the, you know, the world to act on this and, and to do it very quickly. Um, I think Hansen is in favor of, of a binding process, um, but I don't think that, that they're counting on the IPCC process to be the one uh, to deliver it, and and I think there's there's you know there's there's a wide range of opinions about what you know whether this could be uh, done by simply an agreement between some of the largest emitters, uh, or if it if it needs to be a global agreement, or whether the global agreement should be binding or not. You know, as we've seen with the with the IPCC process, the non-binding approach seems already to be failing because a lot of the most nations are not even hitting their their voluntary targets um, a couple of years after after Paris. So I think we're still stuck on this question of how do you motivate countries to act aggressively? How do you develop the kind of political change required? And I, and I, as far as I can tell, I think the only answer is a mass um, popular uprising. And I think we're seeing the beginning of that now. And 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 the question is with all of these these youth led strikes and 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 the marches and and the new waves of voters coming into power who are who are speaking out and voting their interest and an interest in a in a survivable future but the question is how quickly can that can that happen i think the good news is it's happening a lot more quickly than most people certainly i anticipated but i don't know where where you know how how quickly we'll get there Finally, towards the end, you mentioned that Rafe Pomerantz believes that turning the Florida Republicans is key to convincing the wider party. Does this still hold true? And what do you foresee will be a talking point environmentally in this U.S. election year? Yeah, Rafe 
Pomerantz is uh, one of the organizations that he's heavily involved with. Is th- their goal is to use Florida Republicans. Um, of course, Florida being the state that is most imperiled by climate change, you know, next to Louisiana, probably in in the in the nation, and um, its local uh, and statewide uh, politicians, um, Republicans as well as Democrats, uh, understand the science and 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 essentially are in a position of, of having to, to to talk about it. And his idea is to use. Yes, Florida Republicans to try to put pressure on the larger on the party, uh, with his belief being that if if Republicans in the House uh, act and demand for major legislation, the president will have to come along with it, and with the U.S. than the world. I, I think, you know, I, I'm not so sure that that will, first of all, that it will work or that that it will be enough. But I think it's. It's a plan, and I think it, it may have some, some positive effects, you know, even if it's not fully success. But certainly on the left, their uh, climate has gone from an afterthought to being uh, one of the top probably two or three priorities um, on the Democratic side, I think right beyond health care, after health care. And that's, that's an enormous advance um, from just the last electoral cycle even. Um, let alone you know previous cycles where it's 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 just about ignored uh, during presidential campaigns. I think there is a shift that's that's coming, but certainly we're we're far way off from from uh, passing major legislation to do something about it. Thank you, Nathaniel. As you say in the book, we are talking about the fate of all we are. What could be more important than that? It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Good talking to you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to our Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes or SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.